All right, Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, looking at the outline as we looked at this last week, chapters 5 through 11, we're looking at a section where we call it preparing their hearts for Canaan. And remember that the people, the Israelites, are going to be faced with a lot of temptation, a lot of situations in the land of Canaan that Moses is trying to prepare them for. And a lot of what he's trying to do is prepare their hearts so that they're inclined to follow God no matter what situations they run into, fear, temptations to idolatry, and anything on down the, the line. So in chapters 10 and 11, we're still in that umbrella of preparing their hearts for Canaan. And in chapter 12, we're going to change gears, as you see here, to the restating of covenant laws. A lot of covenant laws, we're still doing that with the commentary, the exhortations that go along with that. But let's go ahead and begin at chapter 10. And, uh, and if you would, we'll uh, begin looking at the questions here. I guess it would help if I turned it on, wouldn't it? Always look for the on button. Okay. Chapter 10. First question, Moses received what from the Lord once again? Tables, tablets of stone. And put simply, what is required of Israel here in this chapter? Fear and obedience. Fear and obedience. Follow the commandments. What were they to circumcise? Their heart. And how many were there that went down to Egypt? There are 70 there in the last part of the chapter there. As we look at chapter 10, well, let's read the first couple of verses here. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and come unto me in the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. I will write on the tables the words that were on the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And we are looking at a retelling of what happened here, but let's really understand what this is. Uh, this setting here really began last week when we were at chapter 9. Go back to chapter 9, verse 12. He brought up the subject uh, from Exodus 32 in Mount Sinai, where they made a golden calf. Aaron assisted them in this. Deuteronomy 9 verse 12, they made them a molten image. And he actually had brought up that particular subject when he was talking about earlier in the chapter, chapter 9 verse 4, where he said in the middle of verse 4 there, he said, for my righteousness the Lord hath brought me into the possessed this land, whereas for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out, not for thy righteousness. So he's saying in chapter 9 verse 4, you're here to possess this land, but don't think for once that it's your righteousness. And then he goes on in chapter 9 and lists several occasions of their murmuring, of their rebellion. And one of those occasions was in verse 12, where they made the molten calf. Now, he's still on this topic, uh, this umbrella, if you will, talking about the molten calf, the, the rebellion. He's still talking about that, and that's what really brought about the occasion where the tablets of stone were broken, the occasion that Moses had to go into the mount again and, and start this process over again. 
So that is why we're still talking about this. A lot of what you're going to see here in this first paragraph of chapter 10 is not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, many times the Hebrew uh, writings were a little bit more aligned to topical uh, writings rather than line everything up chronologically. So we're going to see, we're looking at the topic here that is brought up by the molten calf, the rebellion there that took place. So he made verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 3, so I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone. It goes up into the mount with God and he You'll notice that he brings up topics like verse 6 and 7. We journey from Beeroth to Ben-Jaakon to Moserah, and Aaron, there Aaron died. See, that's, that's part of what we're talking about here. When the golden calf subject comes up, the people would recall Aaron dying. Actually, Aaron died not too long before this occasion here. So this would be relatively fresh on their minds. Aaron died. If Aaron died, what part of uh, the priesthood would remain? Would that do away with the priesthood once Aaron died? No, it didn't. And you'll, you think about the, the idea that it's not for their righteousness that they're in this land. It's for God's mercy. That's why they're here. And for the intercession of Moses. He pleaded on their behalf. So not only the tablets of stone or the commandments, the covenant was renewed in a sense but also the priesthood itself. Even though Aaron died, verse 6, the priesthood is still intact. And again, what a merciful God that is to allow that after this rebellion had occurred. So we continue there, and uh, let's go ahead in verse 9 and, and highlight here this idea, Wherefore Levi hath no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord of God spake unto him. So we have not only the priesthood, but the tribe of Levi is still intact. That uh, was not done away with. So verses 1 through 10, Moses' second stay in the mount. And now we shift gears in verse 12. It's like we take a break here and, and Moses says, okay, when you think about all this rebellion that occurred, we mentioned in chapter 9 and thus far, what does verse 12 ask? He says, what does God require of thee? Really? When it really comes down to it, boil it down, what does God require? Verse 12, fear the Lord God. We've talked about some of this. Fear the Lord thy God. Walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him with all your heart and all your soul. What recent chapter did we study that sounds so much like this? Remember what chapter that's in? Six. Chapter 6, I think, mentions a lot of this, doesn't it? Behold, verse 14, unto the Lord thy God belongeth the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is therein. All the, only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. He chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples at the, as at this day. It's not your righteousness, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. It's not your righteousness, it's God's faithfulness to his covenant that Moses actually reminded him of. 
Now, verse 16, circumcised, he says, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked or stubborn, stubborn as you have been. We talked about those ideas there, the, the idea that they were stiff-necked and, uh, and stubborn in chapter 9, especially. So he says, fear him, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart and soul, keep his commandments. Now here's something different that we haven't seen yet in Deuteronomy, verse 16, circumcise your heart. Their circumcision that they were familiar with was a fleshly one, wasn't it? It was fleshly. And now here we're changing this idea to the heart. Remember our chapters 5 through 11? He's preparing their what for Canaan? Preparing their hearts for Canaan. Their hearts have to be right. Circumcise the, your heart and be no more stubborn. So he's going back to this idea. You're not going there because you're a righteous people and you deserve it. You're going there because God is faithful to his covenant and God wants to wipe out the Amorites in that land. Those are the two reasons we highlighted last week. It's not your righteousness. As a matter of fact, you've been very stubborn. And he points out all those times and places you've been stubborn in the chapter. So we look at verse 12 and through 22. He says, circumcise your heart and notice the emphasis here in this paragraph, the emphasis on God. What does God require of thee? And verse 14, Behold, unto the Lord thy God belong heaven and earth. Verse 15, Only the Lord had delight in thy fathers. Verse 17, For the Lord your God, he is God of gods. Verse 18, He doth execute justice. Uh, verse 20, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, or fear the Lord thy God. Verse 21, He is thy praise. Verse 21, He is thy God. Verse 22, Thy fathers went down to Egypt, and now the Lord hath made thee a multitude, a great nation. Notice the emphasis, though, on verse 12 through 22, the emphasis on God. He, what He has done, and what He requires of you. And if they'll focus on God, and if they'll focus on what he's required of them, we might not see these occasions of stumbling, these occasions of rebellion and uh, stiff-necked people that we have seen. We, if we look at verse 12 through 20, if you think about what's written there and compare the laws and commandments that we have in the New Testament. Could we take verse 12 and 22 and apply this to us today completely? All these principles? We could, couldn't we? Everything I think you see in this paragraph applies to us today. Everything. We don't just go back to the old law to see laws, statutes per se, that they studied. When you think also about verse 16, circumcise therefore the, your heart. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul tells the brethren there, he is a Jew who is one not just outwardly, but one inwardly. He's talking about the heart. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. So the admonition is to you and I to circumcise the heart. 
So this is not, and we, when we read in Romans 2.28, that's not strictly a New Testament idea, is it? We go back to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, and we say, well, that's something Moses talked about in Deuteronomy. That's an idea he presented. So circumcision of the flesh is commanded, but God really wants, it's sort of like the idea God wants the heart to obey is better than sacrifice, that kind of idea. God wants the heart. Circumcise your heart, and then things follow into place. Any thoughts or comments on chapter 10? Okay, well, let's go to chapter 11. Looking at the questions again here on chapter 11, what works of God does Moses recount to encourage them? Events in Egypt. Egypt and Pharaoh and a couple others. Okay. And uh, Dathan, or Dathan and Abiram is, are mentioned here, although they are actually followers of what I think uh, Korah, that is their ringleader. What is the difference in Egypt and this land they are to possess? Egypt was a very fertile land, watered differently, wasn't it? It was watered by, well, the Egyptians thought that their idol gods were watering the land, but it wasn't really that, was it? And we'll get into that hopefully in just a moment. It's a land of hills and valleys. Egypt is a flat land, a land that was fertilized by the flooding of the Nile River. What would cause this land to yield fruit abundantly? God would, wouldn't it? God's watering. What were they to do with these words that he mentions in verse 18? Write them on their hearts. Write them up. Or write them on your heart. Lay them up in your heart and your soul. All right, chapter 11. We're continuing the idea here. He's still preparing them for Canaan, preparing their hearts. Chapter 11, verse 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, keep his charge, his statutes and ordinances which he, and his commandments always. Know you this day, for I speak not with your children that have not known and that have not seen the chastisement or the discipline or the instruction of the Lord. I like that word chastisement here because it really plays into the idea that what he's trying to teach them. You've not seen the chastisement, or I'm not speaking to people that have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, His greatness and His mighty arm and His outstretched, or His mighty hand, outstretched arm, His signs, His works, which He did in the midst of Egypt. Now, notice here, He's going to give us three examples here of what He means by this, by this chastisement. Would you say that Egypt and Pharaoh received the chastisement of God? I think they did, in a very severe, severe way. They were flooded. They were overrun with the water at the Red Sea. And they were drowned. Verse 5, second occasion here, he mentions, what did he do unto you? Don't you remember what he did to you in the wilderness? He chastised you in the wilderness for your murmuring. 
Verse 6, also an occasion in the wilderness, in their wandering. Verse 6, what did he do to Dathan and Abiram? Earth swallowed them up. Because of their rebellion, they were followers of Korah. So he mentions three occasions here. Pharaoh in Egypt, you're wandering in the wilderness, you were chastised. You, you just think about uh, when they committed fornication with the Midianitish women. 23, some, some versions say, or different accounts would say 24,000 killed, smitten by God because of their relationship with these women. Korah and company. Korah decided that Moses was taking too much on himself and he formed a rebellion. Korah and Dathan and Abiram formed a rebellion, rebelled against God really by doing so because Moses had been shown to be their leader. So they're rebelling against God and Moses is saying, look at the chastening of the Lord. Here time after time he's tried to chasten you to make you believe, make you understand. So think about these occasions. And when you think about chastisement and you think about discipline, does that have a motivating factor? Does chastisement and discipline motivate? It should, shouldn't it? If it's accepted properly. And we'll talk more about this in in just a moment. It does motivate. And that's what he does, does here, Moses brings this up to motivate the people, make them recall. Now, as we get into verse 8, therefore, he says, shall you keep all the commandment which I command thee this day that you may be strong and go in and possess the land. We've heard that phrase before, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 8. This is a very key thought in the book of Deuteronomy. Behold, Deuteronomy 1 verse 8, I have set the land before you, go in and possess the land. When we were there a few weeks ago, we talked about this is a command. This is not a recommendation. This is a command. Go in and possess the land. It's yours. God is giving it to you. Now he's picking that idea once again here in chapter 11 verse 8. If you go into the land, don't think for a moment you can go in and behave any way you want to and expect to stay there. That goes with the idea, don't think you're there because of your righteousness. Because if you go there and you rebel, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it. It's a promise, isn't it? It's a condition, conditional promise upon their obedience. If they're obedient... They will stay. If they're not, they will be removed from the land. And we see history played out, and they were not. It's very important we understand that this land, this is part of the promise to Abraham being fulfilled, that he gave them the land that he promised that they would have. They would go in and possess this land. He describes the land of verse 9 and 10. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 12, he says, it's a land which God cares for. And you contrast that with the Egyptians that thought their lands were 
made fertile by the gods that caused it to flood, and it was very fertile, and it was indeed, but they attributed it to their idol gods. Moses is saying, you're going to go into land that is watered by God. All lands are. But it's watered by God. And the fruitfulness of it is attributed to God. Verse 12, he says, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. I will give, verse 14, he says, I will give the rain of your land in its season, its proper time, the at, we might say, the most appropriate time for growing crops, former rain, the latter rain. They may gather thy grain, the new wine, thine oil. I will give grass in the fields for thy cattle. You will eat and be full. But take notice in verse 17, if you don't, what is the consequence? The anger of the Lord. And there shall be no rain, and the land shall not yield its fruit. You'll perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. So the idea of the land, we're focusing here now once again upon the possession of the land. He highlights the fact that God waters Canaan. It's not an idol God that waters Canaan. Don't get there and, and attribute your prosperity to an idol God like you're used to thinking of from Egypt. Get rid of that mentality. God waters this land. He says, lay these words up in your heart, verse 18. Therefore shall ye lay these words up in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. Tell them to your children, verse 19. And this once again reminds us of chapter 6. Those very profound words we see in the first paragraph or so of chapter 6. Teach them to your children. Lay these things up in your heart so that, verse 21, that your days will be multiplied. The days of your children in the land, they will also be multiplied. And then we look at verse 22 and 23. Here's one of those if-then phrases that we highlight in our, in our key words. Key words and phrases. The blessings and the curses Here's one of those if-then situations. Verse 22, If ye shall diligently keep all this commandment, which I command you, to walk in his ways, and cleave unto him, verse 23, Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place where the sole of your feet shall tread upon this land that you have taken possession all the way from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river Euphrates, even to the sea, this shall be your border. Nobody will be able to stand against you. You will have no enemies. So verse 26, he concludes that idea with, I've set before you now the blessing and the curse. It's basically, basically like saying, I've set before you the pathway. You can choose the path of righteousness or the path of evil. It's before you, I've, I've given you the choices. Choose which way that you want to go. Believe and obey and be blessed, or disbelieve, fear, go to an idol God, and then you will be removed from the land. You'll suffer those consequences. So obedience is required, is a requirement. It's a condition 
to keep the land, this physical land that they're enjoying, that God waters, that God has blessed them with. But the tendency is too much to, as we saw last week in chapter 12, I attribute the prosperity to myself, perhaps, or the fact that we as Israelite people are such a righteous people, God is blessing us so much. We're so righteous. No, that's not it. God is blessing us, true. But it's not for our righteousness that we're in this land to begin with. We have to remember we're here because God was faithful to his covenant and God wanted to remove the Amorite people. Now our choice, it's our choice. If we want to obey, we can stay. But if we don't, we'll be removed. Any thoughts on Deuteronomy 11? Think about, before we leave chapter 11, about, <clears throat> about the idea of the land that they were in possession of as we look forward. Is there any military ingenuity, military prowess, technological advancement that could protect them from the enemy if they disobey? No. Nothing. There is no military power or military prowess that would protect them once they get into the, to that land. What protects them and keeps them there? It's obedience, isn't it? I know I keep saying this over and over again, but we've got to see that lesson. Their military is not what's going to keep them there, their obedience fervent obedience to, to God. All right, chapter 12. Did anybody have any comments on that? We're going to shift gears here, chapter 12. We're going to talk about the restating of the covenant laws all the way from chapter 12 through chapter 26. Chapter 12, what should be done with the things related to idol worship? Be destroyed. And where would God, or where would they worship God? All right, where he appointed and state that which could be eaten at home. He says, whatever... Your desire is to eat at home. If you have desires to eat meats at home, then that is fine at this point. It's a little bit of a clarification or uh, somewhat of a change to the laws that were given in Leviticus. What was to be done with the blood? Poured it out upon the ground. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 12. We're changing to another major section here. This, these are the restating of the covenant laws with more commentary, more exhortation, more warnings. So verse 12 starts out, These are the statutes and the ordinances which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord the God thy fathers hath given thee, to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places wherein the nations that you shall dispossess serve their gods, upon high mountains, upon the hills, every green tree, and all their altars 
What are you to do with all of this? We saw this last week somewhat. What do you do with all this stuff? What if it's gold or silver? Valuable. Destroy it all. God says destroy every bit of it. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he ask them to do that? Yeah. Get rid of the temptation. Get rid of it. And we'll see that some in this chapter. He doesn't want any trace of their idol gods, anything that would remind them of the people they removed, lest they be tempted some, for some reason and be curious about these idol gods and, and uh, follow them. Go ahead. Verse, verse 3 ends by saying, Obliterate their name from that place. Mm -hmm. Obliterate their name. Very good. You shall destroy, obliterate their name out of that place. Now what about if we remove all these and we come to a very, very pretty high mountain where they worship, they have a worship place here and we're all in the land and what if I see that and I think, you know, I could worship God there. I could really see myself worshiping God there. I could be closer to God there. That, that would feel good to me. What does he say about that? No. no. It's not what feels good to them. It's what God, what God feels is good. And is it any different for us today? Outlined here, verse 1 through 28, it's all worship is prescribed by whom? God. God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. And here he's telling them where he wants to be worshipped. Now let's look at verse 4. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God, as opposed to idols. But verse 5, unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes and put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither shall you come. So God says, when you get into the land, I will tell you where the tabernacle will be. It is there that you shall worship me. And it is how I tell you to worship me. Is that logical that God would tell us so many specifics about how he wants to be worshipped? Certainly does. He leaves out the innovations of man, doesn't he? What feels good to us, what we think is, would be good. You know, if quite honestly, if... You know, whenever you've been up on a high mountain, it, it is very exhilarating, isn't it? And we think thoughts of God. I mean, it's hard not to think about God when you're up on a high mountain. But God says, I don't want you to worship me there. I want you to worship where I choose. And if, we, if they obey that, what does that say? If they listen to God, that's saying... We don't make the choice. God does, doesn't he? God chooses where and how and when and how we, what things we worship him with. And he says there in verse 6, There is where you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offering, and all these things that you've been commanded to do. It is there where you will worship. It's the place where God shall choose. Verse Eight, he says, every man is right now, you're doing what is right in your own eyes. 
And if you think about it like this, they are in a very tight camp, and they have been for quite some time, very tight camp. So everything is very centralized. When you go into Canaan, everything is going to be decentralized. Everybody's going to go their own way, far away from the tabernacle. The tabernacle actually would be in Shiloh for some period of time. And then it would later be in Jerusalem. But if you think about that idea, God's dealing with that in this way. He's saying, you go into the land of Canaan, things are going to spread out. It's not going to be like it's been for many years now. You've been concentrated in a very small area. Now we're going to be dispersed. But even though, don't forget that you will worship God at His tabernacle in His appointed way. And if you also think about it from this standpoint, that if if He doesn't focus on the place that I choose, they would be even more tempted to worship these idols on every green hill and every high mountain. God does not want them doing that at all. So he focuses on, you go to the place where I shall choose. Now verse, uh, let's go on down to verse 12, or well, verse 13. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes. There thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there shalt thou do all that I command thee. So God is prescribing worship. Much the same way that he does today. God chooses the place God chooses the items. God chooses the manner in which they worship. God is very specific with us today, isn't he? How he wants to be worshipped. Very plain and very simple how he wants to be worshipped. Now let's get into verse 15 through 28. As they look at this concentrated area where God puts his tabernacle... They have to be told here apparently what to do with the meats. Well, are we able to eat meats uh, elsewhere? We won't go into this, but you might make a note in Leviticus chapter 17, the first few verses there. He told them to eat their meats uh, in part of the service to to the tabernacle. But here he says, notwithstanding, thou may kill and eat flesh, verse 15, within all thy gates after the desire of your soul. According to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee, the unclean and the clean, I take that to be the person that is unclean or clean, may eat thereof as of the gazelle and as of the heart. So there's meats that you can feel free to eat in your hometown. When you're far away from the tabernacle, if you choose to eat part of a cow or part of a sheep or part of a deer or whatever, you can eat that. Only, he says, the restriction here, verse 16, is what? Do not eat the blood. And that's a commandment that carries through with this. Regardless of where you are and what you're eating, you do not eat the blood. And, uh, of course, you do not, you're not allowed to eat a, an unclean animal. Certainly, we wouldn't violate uh, another command to, to accept this command. So, this is not contradicting a previous command. 
So he's saying, don't eat the blood, and uh, it shall be that which is a clean animal. Verse 21, let's skip on down to verse 21. If the place where the Lord thy God shall choose to put his name there, if it be too far from thee, he's kind of restating this once again, that thou shalt kill of the herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee, as I commanded thee. Thou mayest eat within thy gates after all the desire of thy soul. If it's a deer or a gazelle, verse 22, you can eat of that. Only once again, he says, verse 23, do not eat of the blood. You are commanded not to eat of the blood. Now, uh, verse 26, only the holy things which you have and thy vows shalt thou take and go up to the place which the Lord God shall choose. Initially, that would be Shiloh for many years, and then that would later be Jerusalem. You will go, if it's a, something devoted to God, first fruits, uh, those things of that nature, obviously those things belong to God and those belong to His service. But anything else, when you choose to eat, you may eat those things. Okay, uh, now he deals with idolatry once again in verse 29 through 31. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, wherever you go, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not ensnared to follow them after they that are destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Out of curiosity, they wonder how they used to worship. I wonder what their worship used to be like. Just don't even ask. Don't even inquire. Don't even go that way for fear lest you dwell upon it and think about it and think, well, you know, that's, maybe that's a good thing. Every green hill, every high mountain, just stopping here in just a moment, fast forwarding into the history of Israel, what actually happened to those high mountains? Those places of former idolatrous worship? They set them up and they used them, didn't they? The very thing that Moses is saying here, don't do, they did. And why do you suppose that is? And what did they not get rid of? They did not get rid of those inhabitants. Apparently didn't get rid of these idols completely and these high places completely and utterly destroy them completely. They didn't follow the commandments of God, did they? And they left these pockets. These pockets of people that would influence them to idolatry. Uh, once again, he emphasizes at the end of the chapter, verse 32, whatsoever, what things soever I command you, that shall you observe to do. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. And again, an emphasis on focusing on the obedience to the commandments. Read the commandments. Immerse yourselves in the law. Love God with all your heart and soul. Any other any comments on chapter twelve? Right. Mm-hmm. Verse uh, going back to verse twenty three. 
think as late as the 1800s, bloodletting was a common practice. I think George Washington died from it. Mm-hmm. And here God, I've, I've heard it said, anytime the Bible, anytime God's word states something scientifically, or it's, it's always right, it's yeah. never wrong. Yeah. And this is an example. For centuries, man didn't get it, but God's known it since the dawn of time. Good, Good point, good point, yeah. All right, we're going to skip the questions here, going to chapter 13 briefly. Uh, chapter 13 is a lesson about false prophets, their influence that they would have upon the people, and the punishment that they're deserving of. Verse 2, he says, you'll come to pass when you're in the land, uh, you'll have somebody come up to you that's a false prophet, and he'll say, well, let's, get, let's go after these other gods. He'll entice you. Aren't you curious about this worship and make it look really good? Verse 13, he puts his foot down. He says, you shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. But what if he said something and he prophesied something and it actually came true? Don't listen to him. Even if it became true, do not listen to him. What are you to do to that person? Verse 5, uh, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Even in verse 6, 7, and 8, even if your family member is caught up in this, what happens to them? Stone them to death. What about a city that's full of it? Stone them to death. R- remove the city. Annihilate. Utterly destroy now I want to ask you a question here as we, we've got about a minute left maybe. Uh, you think about this chapter and the severe consequences that Moses lays out for the people. If you have a false prophet among you, stone him to death. I don't care if he did say prophesy and it, it actually came true. He's a false prophet. He's identified as such. Stone him to death. If a very close family member, even your spouse, he says, stone them to death. Very severe. It's very harsh, we think. I want you to think about it in this light. Sometimes this chapter is referred to as the test of a false prophet. I think it's really more so a test of the people of God. It's a test whether they will actually do what they're supposed to do in removing the false prophet. And you think about 1 Corinthians 5 and how it deals with disfellowship with one that is caught up in sin. And 2 Thessalonians 3, withdraw yourselves from those that walk disorderly. The main thrust of those chapters are to those people that are obedient, that will listen. It's not to the person that is out of line, that's disobedient. It's not to that person. It's to the rest of us. And that's what this chapter is telling us. Those of us that are here that are obedient, we are the ones that are responsible. We bear the burden of taking care of the sin and removing it. And so much so that when it comes to the stoning, the occasion of stoning, who is it that is responsible to cast the first stone? 
nearest one. The one that is nearest, and we would describe it as the one who knew about it, who exposed it, and closest to that person. What a lesson in discipline that is. And it's a lesson that not only applied, Moses applies here to their day and time, but it also applies, I think it parallels greatly with, as we've seen in the, in the New Testament as well. Those are not preached to that are in falsehood or in idolatry. He's really focusing on those that are able and willing to take care and remove that sin. Any comments as we part? All right, appreciate your participation.